I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be a strong leader. And this is not news to anybody listening to the Fahrenheit podcast. This is a constant conversation, dialogue with others and with myself. And the definition of a strong leader is constantly changing. There are those leaders that lead with fear, while others lead with compassion. Some like to befriend their team and become more of a family, while others like to create boundaries. And what I'm starting to learn and uncover is that there's no right or wrong answer to being a good leader, but there is a clear line between a good one and a bad one. I am definitely the type of leader that builds what I think of as a family, and that requires heart and it requires seeing others around us as human. As we start to think about treating our teams, our coworkers, our colleagues, our clients, our partners like family, and showing up as humans, there's a deep question of the role that empathy plays. And there's no one better to unpack the idea of empathy than my friend, Michael Ventura. Michael Ventura and I met over 10 years ago at this point during the social media and tech boom in New York. He had launched an agency called Subrosa that has gone on to work with some of the biggest brands in the world. And through his journey, he realized that the key to success, the key to a successful client relationship or campaign or product wasn't just the output of the creative work, but it was actually the role of empathy as a tool for understanding those around us, their needs and how to be successful. So today on the Fahrenheit podcast, we're gonna unpack the idea of empathy. What does it even really mean and how it can be applied to our work, our life and the journey that we are all on. I'm excited to have you on the podcast today to talk about leadership and empathy and building brands and businesses and would love to just start out by asking you like, what is empathy? So empathy is one of the words that's probably most commonly used and most commonly misinterpreted or misunderstood also. It's like in our vernacular, we see it in every headline, everywhere we go, but it's not something that people have a uniform definition for. So sometimes I actually define it first for folks by describing what it's not. It's not being nice. It's not being sympathetic or compassionate. Those are wonderful things, but those are not empathy. Those are side effects of empathy. If we're practicing empathy, the likelihood of us to show up when those other ways increases. And so when I think about empathy, it's really about perspective taking and perspective taking for a variety of different things. Could be perspective taking on you and what it's like to be Farron. Could be perspective taking on a part of myself or an issue that I'm confronting within me and my own sort of journey of self-work and, and things that, are, that I'm tackling. Some psychologists will tell you that you can't have empathy for yourself, that it's too hard. And I, I agree with that as a whole. It's hard to like have empathy for Michael Ventura. But I could have empathy. I could have understanding for a facet of myself or for a particular circumstance I'm going through or some repeat, repeatable pattern that I've been encountering time and again. If I could go a little nerdier, there's, there's like a, the reason why empathy is also tricky is that there are, there are three main types of empathy and no one ever talks about that. They just talk about capital E empathy. And so the first type is effective empathy with an A and effective empathy is sort of like golden rule behavior. So you and I are in a room, I see you across the room. I say, oh, Farron looks sad. What would I do if I was sad? I'd want to be consoled. So I walk across the room, I put my hand on your shoulder, I say some nice words. Well, what if when you're sad, you want to be left alone? 
effective empathy isn't always right because it carries with it my bias. My own projection of what I would want in any given situation. That's right. I'm saying what Michael would want if he was sad, not what Farron would want. So that's why effective empathy often gets confused with sympathy, compassion, things like that, because who doesn't want the world to treat them that way, right? So we Mm. kind of expect those things to be reflected back, but those aren't always the right answer. The second type of empathy is somatic empathy. That's the physical feeling of the emotions of someone else or the experience of someone else. So Mm. an example that everyone's probably had at some point in their life is when you see someone slam their hand in a drawer or a car door and you wince, like you almost like, you almost feel like it happened to you for a second. That's that mirror neuron reaction of you seeing something and knowing what it has felt like when you've done it and you, you cringe, right? That is hard to train doesn't have a lot of applicability in leadership and business, not an area I spend a lot of my focus. But the third type, cognitive empathy, is really where the basis of my work begins. And cognitive empathy, I think of as more like platinum rule instead of golden rule. So Hmm. do unto others as they would have you do unto them. And the only way you're going to know what they want is if you ask. And if you really listen, and if you change your behaviors to meet them where they are, And that's the difference between effective and cognitive. Because if I look across the room and I see you're sad and I walk across the room and say, hey, everything okay? No, I'm actually a little sad. Is there something I can do for you? Actually, I'd really like to be left alone. No problem. And I go away. Now I've met you where you are. And through dialogue, we got to a place that works for you. How do you apply this to businesses? So the work that you do, you're obviously the founder of Sabrosa, which is an incredible agency. What was the point where you realized, wait, this is an unlock for my business and I should actually teach and help other businesses and brands lead with this applied empathy? There's no business in the world that doesn't want to understand its consumers better. There's no business in the world that doesn't want to or shouldn't want to understand its employees better, right? So if we could figure out a way to make this trainable, to make this a practice, not a gift. And I do believe it is something that is trainable. It's not like, yes, some people are born with more of it. Some people are born with less of it, but everyone has the capacity to practice empathy. And like anything else, the more you practice it, the better you get with it, right? It's the same as any other skill. And so by developing tools, frameworks, methodologies, different ways of approaching the practice and the muscle building of the habit of empathy, uh, we found some paths in and, and we've used those in a couple of different ways. We use them in our own research when we want to understand consumers better, when we want to help our clients get inside the mindset of, of folks they're trying to target. We use it a lot of the time in leadership development inside companies. I'd say almost 50% of our work is around organizational transformation and specifically working on the internal team. And part of that is by helping them uncover where their empathy blocks might be, where their challenges in the culture might be preventing them from perspective taking and getting to to work at a deeper level with each other. Does the listening that occurs with the empathy component of the work ever contradict with data? Like, has there ever been an experience or a moment where the data is telling you one thing, but the insights, right, or what you're hearing, whether that's internally with teams or with customers are sort of competing with one another? Not overtly. What I would say, what the closest thing to that that I can think of is that sometimes the data is pointing to a surface level problem. It's pointing to the problem, but it's not pointing to the root cause. And so when you start to really listen and you start to lift up those rocks and look underneath them and see what's there under the superficial problem, 
that's where the, the real unlock often comes from. And that's what data can't often do on its own because data at a, at a quant level is going gonna, is gonna to point at the problem. Think of it almost like, and no knock on Western medicine, but it's a good, it's a good example. A lot of Western medicine is organized mm. to treat the symptom, right? Yep. A lot of Eastern medicine is organized to help the body be stronger and more resilient and sort of, and, and treat, the, treat the overall system so that illness doesn't occur. Right. And so what we like to think about with this is that it does come a little bit more from that Eastern mindset, which is how do we get a more resilient, strong, integrated, thoughtful, empathic culture so that these superficial problems kind of wash away. Do you think that resiliency and empathy are critical to creating culture? Can brands exist without it? Can businesses exist today without it? For a short period of time, but <laughs> is, is it going to create staying power? No, I don't think so. I think that the world expects more from its employers. People, even if you're working a, a minimum wage job in a career path that is not your, your forever job, but it's your right now job, the world has changed enough and the expectations on what you get from your employer have changed enough that mm. even in those circumstances... You should be treated like a human. You should have the the sort of uh, compassion and and a willingness from the organizational level to help you feel like you're thriving and and growing and evolving in your career path. Even if it's entry level, day one, first job, straight out of school, whatever it is, it's incumbent upon organizations to think that way and to be thoughtful. Do they all do it? No. But the ones that don't have talent shrinkage, you know, people go elsewhere, um, they have reputational damage that has knock-on effects to how their consumers perceive the brand. You know, some, some consumers don't go to certain brands because they don't believe in the brand's ethics or the way they treat their employees or the way they show up in the world. And in the you know, recent months with the racial justice movements that have been happening, to not do anything is just as complicit as to be doing something poor, right? Like if you're doing something negative in the world, you're going to get called on it now for sure. If you're not doing anything, that's just as bad. Like you've got to do more than nothing. Do you think it is a responsibility of every brand and business to show up that way? I mean, I guess the, the reaction I'm having to this is like, okay, so I as a leader buy into this. I'm like, Michael, tell me all your secrets. How can I be a more empathetic leader? How can I use this to build my brand, my business, and also my clients' businesses, right? But I guess that part of what we're uncovering here is that not everybody wants to show up emotionally for one another. Not everybody wants to sort of do the work as we call it, right? So I guess, do you ever get resistance? Or do you ever find yourself in a position where someone's not a believer? All the time. And we're not trying to pour Kool-Aid down people's throats either because this is a spectrum. There is a way to begin practicing empathy that isn't about capital W self-work going in and doing all of the, the big gut renovation on, on your ego, right? <laughs> yeah. It might just be about the way you reword and organize your performance and evaluation criteria for your team so that it's organized around getting better, more well-rounded feedback. That's an easy first step for a lot of companies. In fact, it's one that we just did for a big tech company who wanted to bring empathy into their culture a bit more. They realized, particularly at a manager level, that managers in this organization were really suffering from burnout. They were overworked. They were underappreciated. They were losing managers who were leaving to go elsewhere because the culture wasn't really set up to let managers thrive. And we looked at that a bit more. Managers have a tough job generally in any organization because you've got the responsibility of managing folks below you. 
you've got to manage laterally across your peers and you've got to manage up, right? And it's the most thankless job in show business, right? So like it's, if you do your job perfectly well, nothing happens. If you do your <laughs> job slightly poorly, then all of the laser pointers get put on your chest, right? Yeah, it's really like that rough rung on the sort of hierarchical scale. Totally agreed. Yep. So with that, we looked at what are some of the ways we can empower managers to be more set up for success. And we looked and we talked with hundreds of them in the company and we learned a bunch of stuff. And one of the big things we learned was training is important and it comes too little too late. So how do we get them training faster and, and more effectively to be a manager so that by the time they have headcount, they're well equipped to do what they need to do. But then more importantly, how do you get remunerated for the right behavior? Because what we discovered in this company was that remuneration, particularly promotions and salary increases, were the driver of 90% of the people's goals in this company. And that's probably true for a lot of companies too. So how do we put the right criteria in place for your performance and evaluation so that if you are behaving more empathically, if you are eliciting feedback from your colleagues, if you are working collaboratively and, and making an effort to find middle ground with your peers, if you are you know, doing all of these things that are blocking and tackling kind of jobs for a manager, but, but if we're putting them in the criteria as, as such that if you're doing it well, you will be promoted, then we're rewarding the right behavior and that the right type of managers will start to emerge. It doesn't have to be about you know, that, that capital W work straight out of the gate. It may get there and it might even be a Trojan horse to getting there, but, uh, but it doesn't have to be the way we start the conversation. Do you find that there's been a a shift in organizations wanting to lean into some of these more emotional questions around leadership and around growth? Definitely. I would say over the past couple of years, it's been a steady increase. The quarantine and COVID particularly accelerated it through the roof. There are a couple of reasons for that. I think first and foremost, everything changed in an instant, right? All of a sudden now I'm working at home. I've got a different way of working. I've got different tools to work. I've lost that connectivity. I, I value it more because I don't have it, right? By having mm -hmm. it taken away, you now realize what you've been taking for granted all of this time. Totally. But then in addition, something that's been really beautiful to watch is I've seen clients discover stuff about their colleagues that they never knew. They might've worked with someone for 10 years, but they didn't know Mary from down the hall who works in PR has three kids and loves art. But because Mary's taking Zoom calls all day from her home and you see the kids running around in the background and you see the beautiful art she's got on her walls, all of a sudden, Mary's a person. She's not just Mary from down the hall, right? And, she, and you start to see the, the, the whole person more fully. You start to see what Mary's life is like. You start to see what her interests are. You start to see that she's a mom and a caretaker and someone who appreciates art in ways that maybe you didn't know before, right? And all of a sudden, Mary is, Mary is someone you know better even though you're not together and you're not working in the way you used to. And so Zoom has actually, or any kind of video conference, has, has given people windows into their colleagues' home lives. And that's kind of triggered a desire to know each other better that has emerged out of this quarantine, which is kind of cool and a completely unintended consequence, obviously, but something that for us, as we do a lot of work around leadership development and internal culture it's been a driver for people will, making the effort and increasing their willingness to evolve and change the way they work together. I actually would take it one step further to say like visualizing people in their lives, in their homes is a great reminder that they are human. And 
I actually have found that for us at Fahrenheit, 100%, and this might not be true for every organization, but for us, one of our keys of unlocking a sort of success within our team has been knowing each other as humans and understanding in some capacity, and this doesn't mean to your point, like the big capital W or that I know every granular detail of my team's life, but when I know what my team is feeling, what they are going through, I then know how I or the team can respond. And yeah. having that context, for example, a member of the Fahrenheit family is a single working mom. We're here by knowing with that knowledge, I actually feel more powerful as a leader because I can adapt and evolve whether it's something as literal as my schedule with her or the amount of time that I need with her or what hours of the day to like maybe not give her that extra phone call. I feel like that in some ways has unlocked one feeling more like a family and two, this feeling of accountability. And I wanted to ask, do you find that with empathy, people feel more accountable to one another, not just to the work? Yes. And I would say that the, the accountability comes from a couple places. It comes from that braiding or interconnectedness that you start to have as you understand people more fully and they understand you. One of the exercises we often do with folks is about almost developing like a user manual for yourself. Like if you were going to work with me, like what do you need to know? Like I don't work well on impromptu brainstorms. I need a half hour to prep. Or if you want my full attention, I need an hour when I first get in the morning to clear my inbox. Like whatever, like, you know, just like, what are those idiosyncrasies of you that people, you often don't tell people, but if they knew you would work so much better together. Oh, it's so true. And actually creating the culture or the landscape for that conversation to even happen feels kind of like a shift and super important. I remember when I worked for Michael Kors, like I never felt fully aligned. The way that we used to work, the certain hours and time frame that we had to work, even I was just having a conversation about this earlier, like the clothing that I had to wear, just like there were so many things that if I was writing my user manual would have been off about that job. Whereas at Fahrenheit, one of the beautiful things is like, I get to craft it. So yeah. it's very much within my flow. But I totally hear what you're saying around this accountability being created partially through communication. You started out this conversation around empathy talking about listening. So for someone who wants to be a more empathetic leader, for someone who wants to apply empathy, like talk a little bit about what does listening mean and where should they even begin? So active listening is a skill. It is a trained skill. It is not that far afield from other meditative practices in some way, because we as humans really often have that tendency to keep the conversation going, particularly Americans have uh, in business culture, like dead air is like really tough for a lot. Of, it's like, wait a minute, no, Rough. We'll, just keep <laughs> filling, we'll keep filling that air all the time. But in oh. a lot of European business cultures or, or even in Southeast Asian cultures, that spaciousness is okay. It feels totally different. It's contemplative, you know, it gives someone some room to, to, put their thoughts together. There's no expectation that it's one constant thread. But active listening, one way you can practice it is by noticing when you're actually fully listening and processing versus when you're half measuring that and the other half of the time, you're planning what you want to say and waiting for that person to like take a half second so that you can like jump in and say the smart thing that you want to say. And a lot of people do that. And that's just also the way business has rewarded this behavior for a long time is that, you know, the, like a lot of people want to be the smartest person in the room. And 
I've been in so many rooms where people are like, it's very obvious, like as an outsider consultant going into these companies, sometimes I'm, I'm like going on safari, right? And you go in and you kind of like watch all the wild animals and you can see like all the power structures and all of the different tensions and things that are kind of playing out in the room. And, and often it's about, you know, impressing the decision maker or being the smartest person in the room or making sure that everyone knows your, you know, your point has been made or whatever it is. All of that's good data. All of that's something that as an observer, as someone who is going to really practice active listening and practice empathy, all of that's input to understanding where the problems might lie, where the permission structures might exist, where the policies might need to change and evolve. It's so funny. I really resonate with what you just said, because I think in the earlier days of my career, I really honed in on the voice. Like the muscle that I worked was maybe I wouldn't give myself credit as being the smartest, but definitely the loudest, definitely the most opinionated, definitely the most passionate. Whereas now the thing I'm working, the muscle I'm working is that strategic listening or active listening, as you mm-hmm. said it. It's funny. I, I sort of very similar to meditation in the sense of you find yourself sort of to your point, dozing off or thinking about what you're going to say next or thinking about the meeting that you have instead of just pulling yourselves yourself back in for anyone listening to the podcast right now, pull yourself back in and like actively listen to this conversation. And I think it is a really hard skill. And part of the challenge with this sort of empathy and what you're saying is effective empathy is saying this person had a rough day. Let me console them because that's how I would want to be consoled. I would want someone to reach out and say, Farron, are you okay? Really though, this cognitive empathy is about first and foremost, listening, or maybe it's really about asking the question, which sounds so simple and yet effective. Yes. But the problem with it is that it's more work. And so a lot of people don't want to do it because it's, it's going to take 10 extra minutes. It's going to bring up stuff that maybe you don't want to do, right? To have to go ask the question as opposed to assume that this person would want what I want. You know, we're already done. We're going to have a dialogue now, right? So now I've opened the can of worms to have to like, now I got to listen. And I got to show up. And I got to show up, right? So it's more work. And so, you know, people don't always want to put in the work. One thing that I think is a really powerful, easy to adopt first step for a lot of people is just rethinking some of the questions you ask all the time and thinking about ways you could ask them slightly differently because you get such different answers. So a good example. So you and I start our conversation to say, hey, Farron, how are you? And you give me the answer you've given 10 other people because you get asked, how are you all the time? But what if I said, what's it like to be Farron today? You'd give me a different answer. It's the same question many ways, right? But as selfish as it may sound, being a good question asker actually is more interesting for the listener also, because you're going to get stuff that's more dynamic and more personal and often more rich. One of my really great mentors once said to me, know what motivates your team. It was this idea that what motivated one person didn't motivate another. And interestingly enough, you know, you talked about sort of that managerial level level employee at the tech company and how a lot of them are motivated by growth, right? Financial growth, growing in their roles. You know, for me, I feel like I've had this like really diverse group of employees, some who were motivated by money and who very rightly so were like, I want to grow and I want to build and I want to be financially successful. But there were others who have been motivated by different things. And for me, recognizing that I had to understand that motivation was a really big challenge for me and something that I, I, I don't think I fully figured out how to do until I started asking. 
what is it that's motivating you so that I can better show up as a leader? And once I asked that question, I knew the answers and then I had to do something with it. But isn't that so great that once you ask that question, you probably kicked yourself a little bit because you probably spent two months or two weeks or whatever it was trying to rack your brain to figure out what's motivating this person and how, how can I, how can I get the most out of them? And then all you had to do was ask. And then they told you. And what's even cooler is sometimes if they don't know that answer, you have given them the gift of a question that they need to figure out and that they, they need to know for themselves. Then that capital W work just starts happening and you don't really mean to, you just sort of, you just ask the question, what motivates you? And if you don't know that answer, and you're 32 years old, and you've been working for a decade, maybe you should figure that answer out. Yeah, it's a great question to ask yourself. And fundamentally, we spend a lot of time, I think, sometimes like struggling when the answer is really right in front of us. So to your point, yeah, obviously, I had to figure out what to do with it once I understood what motivated my team. But that was a lot easier than me sitting there suffering, trying to figure it out on my own when really, it was all about just asking that question. Have you seen a big difference in your company, right? You're taking this idea of applied empathy and bringing it out into the world, right? Through the work and the training and the teaching that you do. How has it impacted Subrosa? It's been mixed. You know, I'm not going to say that like it, like we're all like switched on and all like, you know, in love with each other. Yeah, we wish. Yeah, don't we We all? can dream. Yeah. I think this presents a piece of work and a development of skill sets that not everybody is up for developing or at least up for developing at whatever point we find them in in their career when they work here so there are some people who like totally get it and they go down the rabbit hole and they and they embrace it both as an individual as well as a practitioner for our clients there are other people who get it that it's like it's a part of the job and it's like how sub rosa brings itself to market and they'll do it but like this isn't transformative for them as a person. And that's totally cool. I'm not a cult leader. I'm not trying to like, you know, make sure that everyone drinks the Kool-Aid. If you just get that this is the way we do our job and that there's a framework and an approach and it serves our clients and our clients come to us for this and you want to do that, but then you want to go home and be in a different place or operate in a very different way. That's okay. You're in your integrity. You can do what you want to do. And then there are folks who, who I think have at times over the course of our growth, sort of bucked against it because maybe they felt like it was a USP and not something we really believed in. Like it was just something in italics that we were putting in the deck to sound smarter than the competitor. That was never our intention. And it certainly isn't where we put our efforts. Uh, you know, we really do. And we, as you know, from your past you know, knowledge of us and our business, we've written a book, we've taught academically, like we, we've brought this into the world in a, in a variety of different ways. But at the same time, it's still always evolving. Could it get better? Absolutely. Does it get better all the time? Yes. Have we thrown old frameworks out and built new ones on top of them? 100%. So depending on, and this is the thing for me, you know, I've always said, I've been running my own business since, since I'm 23. I'm 40 years old this year. And I have realized that, you know, at Sabrosa, which is 12 years old as a business, the list of people who have worked with me is always going to be larger than the list of people who are working with me just by virtue of the size of this business, right? Like a lot of people have passed through over the years, but we're a team of 40 people. So sometimes people entered my life as a leader when I wasn't the leader that I could have been for them or, sh- or, or was able to show up as for them. And, you know, I can't crucify myself for that. Like there were certain things that I needed to learn as a leader and maybe not being the right leader for them showed me what I needed to do to be different. Um, but that's, I think, kind of the battle scars of entrepreneurship is that sometimes you're just, 
you and, and an employee or a partner or a client or a team member or whatever it is might not be in the right place for each other to get the best outcome. As I've stepped into this place that I'm at right now and this current moment in time with Fahrenheit where I feel like I'm in the right place at the right time doing the right thing, I first and foremost can spend time on my leadership, right? That's like an active choice that I've made and an active decision that I create the space for. But I've also grown up and I've learned a lot. And there are moments I look back on in my career and I'm like, how did I act that way? Or how did I operate that way? And I think it was, I just didn't know yet. To your point, I can't crucify myself for not like being all knowing at 23 years old, probably managing a team and a budget that I should not have been managing, but you learn. And I think back to the question that I've been like asking myself, of like, what does it really mean to be a leader? Part of being a leader just means actively saying, I want to be one. It doesn't really matter whether you're a leader for yourself, for your family, for your friends, for your team, for your company, for your clients, like it could be anything. I think being a leader is really actually about one, making the decision that you want to consciously grow and change and do better and hopefully make a positive impact on others. I agree. And, and I would add holding yourself accountable to the outcome. Good, bad or indifferent. Like if you are taking on a leadership role, you've got to be accountable to the outcome. With everything you've learned about leadership through this 20 plus year experience that you've had, like, what do you think is fundamental to leadership? Obviously, coming at it from an empathetic place is critically important. Is there anything else that you've really learned through this journey? Integrity, first and foremost, I think for me is, you know, be a person of your word. Do what you say you're going to do. The amount of erosion that occurs in trust is never worth going back on your word. So when you say you're going to do something, do it. Do it to the best of your ability. Serve, I think, is something that's really... Like a lot of people think leaders are in a position to be served. And I think that it's really about putting yourself in the position of service. Like my job is to be of service to my entire team, to all of my clients. So like I, I, am, I am working for them, right? If, the, if I'm working for them, then I feel like I'm in the right place and really kind of holding them up and pushing them into the right places where they can be successful. And the last one, which may or may not, I don't know if it'll surprise you per se, but it may surprise others, is gratitude. And that's like a word that gets thrown around in a lot of circles. And I, and I don't mean it in like a puffy sense. I mean it in a really, I am fucking grateful to have this opportunity to be privileged. And, and as a white cisgendered male in this day and age, I know how much privilege I walk into every room with. But to also just be grateful for the kinds of problems people bring to us and the trust that they afford us. And the fact that I can sit across the table from a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and they're going to tell me their deep, dark secret, their thing that keeps them up at night. They're not going to tell me like, here's a brief for a new shoe we're launching. They're going to say like, we have a cultural problem in our company. Here's what it is. And we need your help fixing this. And to me, like that, what a gift to be able to work on those types of things. And in this day and age where those types of things impact the lives of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people, when you think about employees and then those employees' families and all of the people that they reach, it's really important work. And I, I'm, I'm excited and grateful to get a chance to wake up every day and do it. The idea of accountability is so rooted in this idea of service and gratitude, because if you're really thinking about how am I serving others, and in some ways you feel really accountable to them, I definitely know for me, the motivation that I have every day is my team more than my customers or my clients or probably even my family, although don't tell them that, like, I'm like, I just want to crush it for my team, for these people that are putting their faith in me as a leader 
to, you know, inspire them every day. And definitely during COVID, even baseline of like pay their salaries. Like it's really my responsibility. Do you think that empathy and responsibility are inherently connected is part of being a good leader, being responsible to understanding what makes your team tick or how they want to be treated to the point of not projecting your own views? Yes, but also being aware that doing it to an extent that is really serving them, but actually hurting the overall business is no good either, right? You have to find the equilibrium of all of it. Like if if it wasn't tenable, now I'll give you like a very real world example. Yeah, give me a good example. When COVID hit, we had to do a couple layoffs, we had to do a couple furloughs, and we asked everyone that stayed to take a 20% salary reduction. It was voluntary. They didn't have to take it. Every single person took it. And that was amazing of them. But also, had they not, if we instead said, we can't have our people take a 20% salary reduction, we would have had to take a second cut 60 days later because that we would have run out of cash. So doing that move was actually the right decision for us in the short run. And by the way, the business is fine and everything's okay again. But like, but COVID hit us really very hard at a time when we weren't prepared to see that happen. Our team rose to the occasion because they knew, because we were transparent with them. And we said, look, if we make these cuts now, we won't have to make a second round of cuts. But if we don't do this and just cross our fingers and hope the world tips back in our direction fast, then everything will be fine and you'll keep your full salary. And everyone was like, I don't want to be on a razor's edge for 60 days waiting to see if we're going to do another round of layoffs. Let's just give ourselves the insurance policy. Let's all be in the same boat, same lifeboat together. And it made a huge difference. I also think one of the, one of the things I have really been conscious of as we've kind of dug into this work around empathy and teamwork is what I sometimes refer to as like the wisdom of the airlines. Put your oxygen mask on first before helping others. As a leader and at any strata of an organization, as a leader, doesn't mean necessarily C-suite. You have to take care of yourself first and you have to make sure you're stable and in a good place and prepared to do what you need to do. Otherwise, you're not going to be helpful to anyone else. So that's why I often talk about applied empathy is self-aware perspective taking to gain richer and deeper understanding. Self-aware is the first two things that are said in that definition, because if you're not aware of where you're at, where your biases might be, where your deficiencies might be, you're not going to ever be able to be as good of a partner or as much of service to the people you care about. Part of the beauty of starting my own business was the ability to just be like, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm not good at. This is my user manual. This is how I want to show up in the world. This is the kind of leader I want to be. This is the kind of culture I believe I can create without any boss, right? Without anyone telling me what to do. And what do you know have never been really, and I would say successful. And what I'm measuring success by in this case is like, am I growing a business? So I have a powerful team that's doing their job and am I happy and fulfilled, right? Like forgetting even financial success. And I think none of this is what they teach you in business school or in whatever leadership school I'm referring to hypothetically, right? Like it took me almost 15 years in business before anyone and any leader started talking to me about the emotional side of being a leader and what it means to show up. I remember being at Michael Kors and really feeling like if you took time, like if you went to dinner with your friends or you took the weekend fully off, like you were weak. And you and I knew each other back then. Like I was burning the candle at every end. Is that a saying? I was overworked. I was exhausted. I was completely on edge. And I definitely wasn't showing up as a leader. And when I think back to moments where my leadership was lacking, 
that moment is definitely one of them. Being in your best state, I think mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it is that works for you, is so inherently important to showing up for others. In some ways, if you look at to what you mentioned of being in service to others, in some ways, taking care of yourself becomes a very selfless act. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's totally fair. Like you have that work is so that you're better equipped for other people. You can be showing up for them in all the ways you have to. If I'm tired and dragging ass and like, you know, can't get my energy level up and someone needs me to like show up for them at six o'clock at the end of the day for an hour long brainstorm because like they've got something due to a client and like, and I'm just like not there for that and I don't have the energy for it. If I knew I really was not going to be any good to them for some reason, I would ask them like, you know, how, how time sensitive is it? Could we do it tomorrow morning? Is this the sort of thing that I could take home and send you some notes later on? I'm going to take a nap, you know, whatever it is, right? Like maybe I'll find a solution like that. But if they're like, no, I need it right now, then, you know, you, that you rise to the occasion. That's what you've got to do. I mean, that's part of, that's part of being an entrepreneur, but going back to that Eastern or Western thing, if I'm taking care of myself and doing things the right way at 6 PM, I've got enough gas in the tank to still be there and do it. Right. Cause I'm, 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 taking care of the machine that takes care of everyone else. It's sort of like these different muscles that we are constantly trying to work, right? Whether it's creating empathy or listening or perseverance or fortitude after a long day. Do you think that this knowledge has applied to your personal life? Do you feel like you've taken this sort of understanding of empathy and had it bleed, you know, outside of just the office? Absolutely. In fact, I don't really know where one ends and another begins. When I started my first business, I was spread thin, candle at both ends, all the same stuff you were just saying. And at a certain point, super burned out, not taking good care of myself in all all litany of ways and kind of fell apart. And it had like a crucible moment by, I was changing the water cooler one day, just like saw white and I opened my eyes, I was on the floor and I'd herniated three discs in my back, went to the hospital, x-rays, MRI, the whole thing. And they're like, look, you have bone on bone. You have no discs. It's completely eroded. We're going to have to do spinal surgery. You're going to have arthritic pain the rest of your life. And I was like, that sounds fucking terrible. And I'm like 26 years old. Like that, how is this possible? And they were like, I don't know. You just have like worn it out. And like, I was like, I don't really accept that diagnosis. And so left and went to try acupuncture for the first time, which in that period in my life, that wasn't like as ubiquitous as it is now. And the first question the acupuncturist asked me was not about my back. He said, how stressful is your life? And I was like, oh, it's the most stressful (laughs) thing I know. And he was like, yeah, I don't think you have a back problem. I think you have a stress problem. And we went into working on that. And I learned so much about having self-empathy going back to this, like taking care of yourself thing. So now fast forward to today, nearly 15 years later, I don't see it at like what I'm doing at work and what I'm doing at home, I'm, I'm showing up as my whole self in both places because that's the only way I can show up now. And it's the only way I can take care of myself is if I don't compartmentalize. I started an alternative medicine practice 10 years ago where I started treating people in one-on-one sessions. And for years, I kept it a secret. I was like, I can't let my corporate clients know that like I do indigenous mm-hmm. medicine with people that's going to figure them out. And then when I wrote Applied Empathy in, in 2018, the curtain really came up on that because it was a fundamental thread of the book was about discovering this whole self and about how I don't need to hide these compartments from each other. And it was amazing how many 
some browser clients I had who called and be like, you've been doing this and now you told me and I need to know more about this, right? It was like, it, like the world that I was so afraid of connecting was actually like dying to know more about it. And it became such an interesting like layer of my life. So many compartmentalizations are happening and it's actually become this really interesting constant thread in the Fahrenheit podcast conversation. I mean, you and I ran into each other in Morocco one time and like, I feel like you knew me as like Jet Set Farron, who was this travel at the time pseudo blogger. And then there was like the corporate Farron who like would show up at her fancy corporate job managing budget. She probably shouldn't have been, but managing. And like, I always had to keep them separate. And it was actually becoming incredibly exhausting. And I actually remember the first time that I really leaned into it was this past year when I went to Burning Man for the first time. And I was like, I can't hide it. Like there's something about going to Burning Man where your phone is literally going to be off. I can't just tell my clients that I'm going on vacation. I literally have to say like, my phone will be off for seven days. I will be unreachable. And I was so afraid. I was so scared of telling people this. I had been like hiding this other piece and this other part of myself for so many years from these corporate tech mostly male, quite frankly, founders. And I was just like, screw it. This is exactly why I started a business. And this is exactly the type of culture and that I want to create. And I also want to set an example for my team that when they want to go out into the world and experience things or do things or have side hustles or spend time with their family, that we create the space for that. And I did it. And of course, what do you know? I got back like half of the founders were back. Me too. I'll see you there. And the other half of the founders were like, have a best, the best time. I hope I don't hear from you for 10 days. And so I yeah. do think that it is ironic that like the thing we've historically been taught in business is to show up in this professional sense. And I think those lines are getting blurred. And I think for me, I've found more success in being myself than I have in trying to be professional or a leader or create boundaries. Actually, the less boundaries that I've had, that I've created with my team, the more successful I think we've become as a team. The increase in conversation with HR leaders in our business around, not to the expense of all of the DE&I work that they all need to do on all the diversity issues that we know, but a lot of HR leaders are also paying more and more attention to cognitive diversity and making sure that it's not just visible diversity that we have gender balance and that we have racial balance, mm. but that also like that we have cognitive different uh, differences that we're recruiting from places that are going to bring divergent thought and that are going to help us, you know, see problems from new angles. It's not enough to just change your quotas, but you're still fishing in the same ponds. You have to really think about who are the people you want to surround yourself with that are going to push you, make you think differently. Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, we had one review on the Fahrenheit podcast on Apple. And the reviewer said, like, really well thought out, beautiful podcast. But it's, I don't remember the exact words, but they said, like, it's coming from a very narrow place. You know, I took that feedback to heart. And it's something we had actually talked about before, which is myself and a few people on the Fahrenheit team, we come from similar backgrounds. We come from similar backgrounds in terms of doing marketing in early stage tech companies during sort of the boom here in New York City. And that's the world. That is the context that I live in and the world around me. And I've actually been thinking a lot about this. How do you create diversity? I've been calling it diversity of context. What world and lens do we come from in order to challenge each other's thoughts and show up in a broader, more global view? For a founder who's starting out, and maybe not even a founder, but for anything, an entrepreneur, a creative, a business leader who's just starting out on this journey of leadership and wanting to show up more for themselves and for their team, where should they begin? Build your risk tolerance smartly and at your own pace. 
Cool. Entrepreneurship is a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> and if you're trying to just take big risks and take big swings every single time, you might hit a couple big ones, but you also might really put yourself too far out in front of your skis. That's like three different sports metaphors, but you know what I mean. And, and I think that the pressure often around us to see how big bets are being made elsewhere sometimes makes a new entrepreneur feel like, well, that's the way entrepreneurs work. You've got to be this like audacious risk taker. There are lots of ways to be an entrepreneur. And one of the pieces of advice I got early on from a friend was the most important thing is staying power. Will you be around in six years when that person you met then needs you now? Right. And like, will your business have evolved and still be meaningful and still doing the kind of work that they're looking for? Because it's remarkable. I mean, I have some clients that I'm working with. They're on their fourth job. I've been working with them for over, over a decade and they've bounced around to different companies and they've always known they could call us and we would be a good partner to them. And like, to me, that's, that's the mark of a business that's built resilience. That's the mark of a leader. And I think it comes back to really building relationships for sure. And in some ways, building relationships starts with actually listening and trying to understand the person on the other side. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation. I'm not going to lie. I'm about to go do this exercise that I was like scribbling the notes down with my team. <laughs> so I'm going to steal one of your empathy exercises and do it with the Fahrenheit team. I loved this conversation. It was so nice to see you. Yeah, you too, Farron. Thank you. This was, this was a pleasure. And, you know, congratulations on everything you're doing and keep asking good questions. Mm -hmm.